God, this morning, first of all, I want to lift up another church in our community. I want to pray for uh, First Baptist Church Greenville. I want to pray for Terry uh, Blankenship and his family. Lord, I'm thankful for a shared ministry and thankful for uh, a shared calling and a shared Holy Spirit, shared baptism, all that we have in common between FBC Greenville and Cross Point and the other Christian churches in our community. Lord, I pray that we have that far more in common or what we have in common is far more important to us than how we may differ. Lord, I pray that you would guard the churches in this community or maybe rescue the churches in this community or continue to rescue, as I believe you are doing, from a spirit of competition, that we can truly want the best for each other for your namesake and for your glory and that we can truly cheer for each other and pray for each other and be burdened for health, for life, for growth in the other churches in our community. Lord, I am thankful for Terry and for his ministry to his family. And Lord, I pray that that will be something that will be primary to him, that you would guard him from being married to the church, but that his bride would be his bride and that the church would be second behind that, the ministry to your people. I pray that you would make up anything that might come off as a shortcoming, might come off as a disappointment to somebody that may have a Lord, a few things I want to lift up in these next few minutes specific to our church and this people. We're facing here in these next few days. I want to pray for Christian Haas this morning. He's preparing for surgery this Thursday. Lord, I'm thankful that Christian is so dependent on you right now and so trusting you. Lord, I pray that you can use this as Lord, I pray that you would use this tumor for your own glory and that you would show all those that know Christian that you do work all things together for good for those who are called according to your purpose and that you would work this for good. Pray the same thing for little Zachariah Way Casey. Lord, we pray for, for this family, for Cody and Gwen, for a deep, out loud, salty, bright, aromatic trust in you where others can see what it means to have a God that's involved, engaged, attentive, a God that we can trust as a good father, a good father to Gwen and Cody, as a good father to little Zachariah. Or two, we want to lift up Amelia and just pray that you guard her every breath, every swallow, her every heartbeat. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bring health to that little recovering body. 
thankful for your provision of medical care and medical coverage. It's really miraculous, amazing. Lord, in these next few minutes, too, I want to pray for how we spend them. I want to pray for an attentiveness that is um, fueled by the Holy Spirit. I want to pray for a clarity that comes from the Holy Spirit, for a quickening that can only come from the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we will christen this month, we spend together considering the first advent and anticipating the second advent, that we will do so this month in a way that brings glory to you. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for setting that up. Sorry about the in and out. You know, it's, um, it's a weird deal. We'll figure it out eventually. <clears throat> this morning is really, is, it's the first sermon in what we're doing this month. It's called Advent. We did it last year where we dedicated the entire month of December to considering Christ's first Advent which is when he came 2,000 years ago, and anticipating, celebrating that first advent, and then anticipating his second advent. So that's what we're doing again this month, and it may become a tradition. There may be a month where we actually don't, a December where we actually don't do advent, but I would kind of be surprised because it was so sweet last year, and we're anticipating that it'll be more of the same this year, where we really, can we be repetitive and redundant are too repetitive and redundant when it comes to the incarnation and the coming of Christ? Can we be too repetitive and redundant when anticipating his return? I don't think that's possible. So I would anticipate this, this would be a tradition, but I do um, suggest that there may be a time that we would depart from it, but not this month. We're gonna dedicate this month to celebrating and anticipating. And also there's a little overlap, this sermon and next sermon in where we've been, a series of sermons on the awe series. You may be uh, familiar with those if you've been here for a while. Uh, this summer we had a series of sermons that were just sort of quickening sermons where we're going back to awesome things about God for the purpose of being renewed and being refreshed and being awestruck with who God is, what he's done, um, what he's done for us in Christ, and um, sort of being renewed worshipers. I needed that this summer, and I think, uh, and I heard from others that needed that as well. So this sermon and next sermon are sort of an or overlap of awe and advent. Turn to the book of Mark. I'll tell you as you're turning there too, kind of what the plan is for the morning. You're getting about half of the sermon that you would have gotten had not the Lord intervened. I actually had plans of preaching his home base, Philippians 2. That's something that I have to figure out every week that Scott and Brad have to figure out as well. What is home base? What, are, what passage are you exposing? And Philippians 2 was actually the plan. And the Lord, I think, intervened. I had planned on um, working through a passage in Mark as sort of illustration for Philippians 2. And what the Lord, I guess, impressed upon me is just the simplicity of just setting the illustration loose and letting it do its work. So this morning, we're going to be moving through mainly two chapters of Scripture in Mark, Mark chapters 9 and 10. I'm going to give some context before we actually climb into chapters 9 and 10. But we're going to work through not every verse of the two chapters, but little sections in both of those chapters and sort of get a big picture of what's going on in Mark and what this has to do with Advent and the condescension of Christ. That's the t 
title for this morning's sermon is The Condescension of God or The Condescension of Christ. And what this means is this is the, the coming down of God at the first advent and what actually took place when God condescended and took on flesh and then lived and died in our place. Condescension is a word that you may not use very often uh, unless and it's in a bad way or someone is condescending uh, I want you to separate that use of the word from how we're using it this morning. It's not in a negative sense. This is, our, this is the good news where God took on flesh and condescended to earth to live and die in our place. So this morning we're going to be considering the condescension of God through a little couple of chapters in the book of Mark. The, the sermon really, I think, was born this summer for me. I was on sabbatical this summer. We were traveling, and I had lots of time to read whether it was on a plane or in a car or in a, not in a car so much because I was driving most of our trip, but in a train, planes and trains, spent a lot of time uh, in those and a lot of downtime actually reading. And really, there was no special reference that I was reading scripturally other than the McShane Reading Guide, which I've mentioned the last couple, last couple Sundays that I've preached anyway. Just happened to be working through the book of Mark this summer and reading large sections of scripture and really fell in love with the book of Mark and fell in love with this picture you're going to see this morning. Sort of a dichotomy between uh, this message that Christ brings, what he does when he comes, and how it plays out with his citizens. I fell in love with the book of Mark, I think, this summer because it's so simple. I, I think I used to avoid it because I wanted more detail. You know, Luke or Matthew is going to give a lot more detail to the life of Christ. Mark, I always thought of as sort of the cliff notes of maybe Luke, you know, just sort of shorter and easier. But what I found this summer is there is a, a, a theme in Mark. There is an emphasis in the book of Mark that's important for us for this time of year as we consider, consider the condescension of God and the coming of a king and that theme in the book of Mark has to do with a coming kingdom. And for us, after the fact, a kingdom that has come and a king that has come. It's a wonderful book, and I think it needs to be read in larger chunks. And as it's read at times in larger chunks, you find themes that sort of emerge. And this kingdom theme was pretty delightful. I'll give you a little bit of context. You stay in Mark chapter 9 unless you just especially want to jump in with me. I'm going to read a few passages from chapters 1, and then a few passages from chapter 1 and 2, and then chapter 15, and then we're going to move in together to chapter 9 and enjoy together the morning. this morning the illustration for what I would have been preaching. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, just to show you how condensed this gospel is. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. If you know the story of the temptation of Christ, you know that's a pretty condensed version of the story, and it's actually kind of delightful when you think about it. If Mark, excuse me, if Luke and Matthew are the trees, Mark is the forest, you have a chance to kind of pan out and see things and themes that you wouldn't see otherwise. And here's a theme that emerged for me reading at a um, larger level or a larger chunk level. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe 
in the gospel. There's a thread that runs throughout this entire book about the kingdom of God. And here's what struck me this morning as I was thinking about the wording here. The gospel of God is being proclaimed. And here's the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I realize I've been preaching the gospel for 10 years, but oftentimes we focus more on how you can get saved than the gospel of God that a kingdom has come. That that just struck me this morning. Wait a second. I don't know that I've ever really presented that as gospel. That's the good news that a kingdom has come and that a king has come? We're preaching the gospel this morning. It's pretty exciting to consider that. We're going to see a thread as we go along this morning of kingdom, king, kingdom ethic, and then an irony of the kingdom citizens. Here's some glimpses of the irony. Chapter 1, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Okay, just let that stand for a minute. Fishermen. They might be their version of a construction worker, a pretty common, ordinary dude, guy that's got calluses, a guy that's got biceps and forearms because he works for a living, a guy that I appreciate that can build things and do things that I often don't have time to or the know-how to do. Here they are, fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Right off the bat, you see a little glimpse of the kingdom citizens that are connected to this coming of this king, and they're common folk. They are every man. Just take that in for a minute. Let that hit you and enjoy that. If you're a construction worker or you do things with your hands or you're the fisherman version of whatever it might be today, you can appreciate that he came for you. I'm thankful that he didn't show up looking for the most likely to succeed because he would have had to pass me by and would have passed a lot of you jokers by. I'm thankful it doesn't say that he showed up looking for those that are in the National Honor Society. Any of you? Some of you are like, yeah, I was. Well, not all of you. That's the problem. He showed up for every man and called every man. He didn't show up looking for the MVP on the football team because I would have gotten passed by there as well. He didn't show up looking for class prez. He didn't show up looking for the extraordinary but the uber-ordinary. Man, let that hit you, fireman. He showed up for a fireman. He showed up for a dude that builds things. He showed up for every man. This king arrived. This king condescended from heaven. And the first citizens he grabs are ordinary folk. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Look at chapter 2. Well, or listen to chapter 2 if you're over there in chapter 9 hanging out. Listen to this next gathering of some citizens. 
Chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This kingdom thread that runs throughout the entire book, a couple of passages I was going to share with you over in chapter 15, just listen, listen to these passages and realize Mark is making a significant point about the nature of the kingdom. In chapter 15, Pilate asks him this only question recorded in this book, or his first question, which is one of a few in Mark specifically. Are you the king of the Jews? The only time in this book or in this gospel where he responds to Pilate is to say, you have said so. Yes, a king has arrived just like you said it. And later on in verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks the Jews. And Pilate again said to them, what shall I do with, with the man you call the king of the Jews? And Jesus is later mocked in verse 18. They began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. He put an inscription above his head that said, King of the Jews. And in verse 31, so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then even toward the very end when he's buried, Joseph of Arimathea, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. This book is about the coming kingdom, the king and the irony of her citizens. Common dudes, Andrew, Peter, James, John, and now even tax collectors and sinners. Levi, man, just let that hit you for a moment, that he came to call the ordinary, that he came to call the sick, that he came to call sinners. Now, keep your eye on the common and the sick as we move into chapter 9. We're going to read some sections of chapters 9 and 10. We're just going to enjoy this developing story of king, kingdom, citizens, keeping in mind the distance and nature of his condescension. Okay? Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's the thread that runs throughout the entire book. I want to grab the thread before we start reading these little vignettes. Chapter 2, or chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, every man. Peter and James, and John, common men, the sick, the sinners, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. (laughs) And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, I just have to, every time I read this, I have to read it with a stupid voice. Hey, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter was one of those that when he's scared, he talks. You know that person? In a moment where everybody's just kind of quiet, taking something in, Peter's the guy that talks. Hey, Jesus. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they, saw, they, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This first picture here is the picture of Jesus taking common men up a high mountain to see a glimpse of his glory, intensely radiant glory. This is the coronation of the king. Think about who's invited to the coronation of the king where father puts crown on son. Who's invited? A bunch of ordinary dudes. Peter and James and John representing every man. It's Peter and James and John that get to hear the words from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What a glorious moment this must have been. The king in all his glory shining for the common and the sick and the sinners. Proof in how Peter responded. Common, sick, and sinners. Again, down in verse 14 for the next little section. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it it has often cast him into the fire, and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, just uber honest, and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. 
And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Beautiful picture here of the king exercising dominion. Here mankind stands with empty hands, empty pockets, nothing to bring to bear here in this situation with a dad and a son that's sick. Epileptic fits, who knows what's really going on there. At least he's mute, we know that. But the king exercises dominion over the unseen spirits and forces that leave the rest of us empty-handed. He does what kings do, reigning and ruling, and in this case, commanding, come out of him, and don't you ever come back. And look who the benefactor is, a nameless boy and a dad with frail, feeble faith. The king shows up, and he does this for a nameless boy and a dad with frail, feeble faith faith. Man, are you beginning to see hints of his condescension? Are you beginning to see the distance that he traveled and the nature of his condescension? Let's look now at verse 33. They're traveling on from there and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Is it coming into focus? And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This struck me. I think I laughed out loud reading this this summer in context. He's just healed a boy. He's just been transfigured on the mountaintop. And his disciples are sitting around arguing about who's the greatest. It made me think of a time a couple summers ago that we traveled to the Redwood Forest hearing a couple little boys arguing about who was taller in the Redwood Forest. No joke. Two little boys arguing, I'm taller than you are. No, you're not. I'm taller than you are while they're standing in the redwoods. Let that irony hit you. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Christy and I were talking about this earlier this week, and we were laughing about a time I was little. I have um, always been very fond of food and very fond of sweets. And even at my earliest age, if there was food in the house, special food, particularly fudge, I could find it. And my parents have a picture of me with fudge on my face and hands. And the story that goes with it is, what fudge? I've been nabbed in the act. Bent, where did you, have you gotten into something? Did you get into the fudge? And the answer was, what fudge? All over my face. It was proof that I found it. And here they are with fudge on their face. What are you guys talking about? And nobody was willing to answer him. What fudge? They were nabbed as I realized, man, this is so familiar to me. These guys are competing for and arguing about who's the greatest while they're standing underneath the redwoods of the greatest being that has ever been. 
I thought, man, they're not freaks. They're me. Do you do this? Do you ever pine for more recognition? Do you ever pine for more appreciation? I had a funny little thing develop in my home, and Christy told me I shouldn't share, share this story because I, I would get emotional, but I'm not going to get emotional. She said, you're going to cry. <laughs> well, then, no, I'm not going to cry. It's funny to me now. Daniel and I have this thing. Here's, here's where this conversation was born. Daniel cut his thumb on a hiking trip recently, and we were at the uh, ER, and Christy and I were trying to encourage him to toughen it out a little bit because it hurt, and we were thinking about his little niece, his cousin, our niece, who is just like tough as nails. I don't know how she's so tough. And we, you know, both of us, it may have been the worst parenting moment in history, but both of us thought, you know, and we even said, Daniel, um, listen, Julia would be handling, she, would, she wouldn't even be laughing. I mean, she wouldn't even be crying right now. She'd be laughing. And that didn't really help the moment. But shortly after that, Daniel and I had a conversation and he mentioned something about his uncle, my brother-in-law, Craig, being tougher than I am. And man, that just hit me funny. I mean, you know, former Marine, I'm thinking, okay, all right, let me be tougher than my brother-in-law at least, please. In the eyes of my own son, it really got under my skin more than it should have. I'm not, not buying for the toughest in the world. I just want to be at least tough to my youngest, you know. And yesterday, man, it was funny. We had a conversation that, that kind of connected to that, and I realized the irony. Arguing about who's the toughest. Really? Man, in context, man, all that is is a little, little symptom of I have fudge on my face. Do you? Does anybody not? Man, here they are arguing about who's the greatest while they're walking with the greatest. Are you seeing the distance in his condescension? You seeing that he came for the common and the sick and the sinners with fudge on their face? Do you enjoy that about him? Let's keep reading. Let's move on to chapter 10, verse 13. Let me make a couple of comments before we go there. I failed to mention these things in regards to what he just said. They're busted with fudge on their face. They're arguing about who's the greatest and who does he put in front of them, a child. Now, this kingdom is gonna be about the the rugrats, figuratively, at least in that, that case, he seems to be leaning toward more, more of a figurative, symbolic application. But listen where he goes next in chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Just take in for a moment this picture of the King of kings, Lord of lords, the high king of heaven, condescending to earth, and grabbing the rug rat and putting his arms around him because there is no rug rat. You know, we use that term sort of joking around, but in some ways, kids are often thought of as inconsequential. They get in the way of big people's stuff. That's what's happening here. 
Jesus is tending to big people's stuff and these kids are in the way. And the disciples are shooing them away and Jesus calls them to him and says, this kingdom is for the likes of them. And there may still be a figurative application there is that the child is, we, we are to take the kingdom like a child takes things dependent and needy, but at the same time, it's not just figurative because those kids are not figurative. They're real kids. And he's putting his arms around real people. The nature of our God that condescended to put his arms around little kids. This sort of burden for real, not figurative children, but real children is what fuels our children's ministry to be excellent about every time we engage your child with truth, whether it's Wednesday night or Sunday morning, excellent. Excellent about when we engage them when they're in here because they're not figurative, they're real. But there is a figurative message in there that is important, it's helpful to see. His kingdom is for those who are childlike in their dependence and needy. This is the nature of his kingdom The king teaches us that the needy, the dependent, the small, the inconsequential, the unimportant, that's who he came for. You see the distance? See how low he stooped? For the common, for the sick, for the needy, for the dependent. Let's continue on in chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter this kingdom I've been talking about. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. They were amazed because in their context, if somebody had wealth, they assumed, well, this is God's blessing. God has tremendously blessed this young man. If the kingdom's not for them, then who is it for? And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished And said to him, then who can be saved if not rich folk? Jesus looked looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. A camel can get through the eye of a needle when God's involved. Still pretty hard, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. A beautiful little snapshot here is that his kingdom isn't particularly, it's an important word, for the haves. His kingdom is especially for the have-nots. And in fact, it's really, really, really hard for the rich to enter and participate in it. It's not impossible. 
but it's really, really, really hard. And the disciples are amazed because in their estimation of the kingdom, if it isn't for the rich, who God so richly blessed, then who in the wide world is it for? See the distance? See the distance that he condescends? He condescends so low as to bypass the greatest, to not land on the MVP, does not land on the most likely to succeed, does not land on the rich, but bypasses all those world values to the least and the have-nots. He bypasses the greatest and the haves and the well to go to the lowly and the least and the poor. You see the distance? Do you enjoy it? Now, verse 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This crazy dichotomy I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon in this development of passage, these two chapters, would just blow you away if you think about it. What Jesus is saying and what he is illustrating as the value of the kingdom is the complete opposite of what the disciples are doing and pursuing. Here's yet another example. Fudge on their face. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Selfish ambition. That's what these guys are about. They're walking among the redwoods and they want to be tall. Maybe not the tallest, but tall. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant. It's for those to whom it's been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. Why are you vying for the right and the left, James and John? What if we wanted that spot? That's why they're indignant. You're trying to get in a little word for the pole position. We want that too. Fudge all over their face. And Jesus calls them together with fudge on their face and sits them down and says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, not among this kingdom. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John and the rest show us just how sick they are. And if we're really honest, they remind us just how sick we really are. They show that man can, in fact, walk among the redwoods and argue about who's tallest. They can walk with a king who's saying over and over again in so many ways, you think this matters, I say this matters, and still miss it. Over and over again, 
You think this matters? I tell you this nameless boy matters. You think sitting on my right matters? Let me show you what matters. This father with frail, feeble faith. That's what matters in this kingdom. You think first is best, fellas? I tell you first is last. You think first is best? I tell you first is last. And who's least of all, who's servant of all, will be first of all. It's a contrary kingdom. It's a kingdom that's so different from our human designs. You think wealth matters, and I tell you, if anything, it's a loaded down camel in a really narrow passage. It's not all you think it is, fellas. You want to sit on the right and you on the left, and I tell you, the greatest among you isn't sitting at all, but is serving. See how low he condescended? The fact that he would sit and teach these knuckleheads. The fact that he would, the, the fact that he would sit and show them this is what kingdom looks like. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how your king is moving, riding a donkey's coat, washing the feet, your nasty feet, and then ultimately going to a cross. Watch this kingdom. It is a contrary kingdom indeed. I read it, my little notes that I placed in there about the good news, and I thought about that at the end. I said, man, really, more than good news? If we really look at this with, the, with worldly eyes, we have to say more than good news? That's sort of weird news. Weird news where the first is last and the last is first? It's counter to everything that I would design. But for the one who's last... And the one who has weak faith or the one who's sick or the one who has need, the one who is in fact childlike and has reached the end of themselves and say, I got nothing, for them it's good news because that's who he came for. The one who's struggling in their marriage and says, man, I'm all out, I got nothing. That's who he came for. The one who's dealing with grief yearly about this time of year, that's who he came for. He condescended for the sick and the needy and the poor and the hurting. That's who he came for. In the world's definition, it's weird news. And those who are on the benefactor end, man, it's good news. Really, really good news. I think Jesus says in some ways, in case you missed it so far, fellas, what I've been saying over and over and over again, Here's a visual aid. Continues on in verse 46. They came to Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. You hear that? A blind beggar, a nobody. Inconsequential. In the way, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Shut up, Bart. 
You do this every time somebody important comes by. Shut up. You're so in the way. I wonder if the disciples were telling him to shut up too. I wonder if they were beginning to get it yet, that this is who he came for, the Bart's. But he cried out all the more, go Bart. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. Then passing by, he stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, Bart, take heart. That rhymed, get up, he's calling you. Come here, Bart. He's calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. Man, you gotta take in the distance. You got to enjoy that God condescended way, way, way down past the well, way down past the rich, way down past the perfectly fine without him to the rest of us that really need him to the common, the childlike, the blind, the needy. When I was studying the Philippians passage, I was reading a a sermon from Spurgeon from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And Spurgeon just had such a beautiful way of putting things. I thought this was a nice little excerpt. He was speaking of Jesus' power that he set aside. If he had pleased, he could have spoken worlds into existence. He had but to lift a finger, and a new universe, as boundless as the present, would have leaped into existence. At the will of his mind, millions of angels would have stood before him. Legions of bright spirits would have flashed into being. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. He who said, light be and light was, had power to say all things, be and they should be. This powerful king stooped for the likes of Bartimaeus stooped for the likes of Andrew, Peter, James, John, Levi, a nameless boy, a dad with frail, feeble faith. He stooped for the unlikelies and the inconsequential. He stooped for children and hugged them and blessed them. Man, this God came down all right. This God came way down. Man, it should leave you humbled. It should leave you wonderfully humbled at the beginning of this month as we celebrate the first advent. I have a commentary by a guy named Fee. I think his first name is Gordon. And a commentary on Philippians. And he had this to say about humility. I thought it was so beautiful. Listen to this. 
This is how it should leave us. A proper estimation of oneself is humility. A proper estimation of oneself, the stance of the creature before the creator. We see we have fudge in our face. Utterly dependent and trusting. Here one is well aware both of one's weaknesses and of one's glory. It says in parentheses, we are made in his image after all. There may actually be some things that are sort of great about you. It's not saying that it's all bad. There's some glories there. But it's well, this humble person is well aware both of one's weaknesses and of their glories, but makes neither too much nor too little of either. (laughs) I love that. Makes neither too much nor too little of either. True humility is not self-focused at all. I added at the end of this quote, as I'm thinking about it in context, it's king-focused. Once Peter and James and John and Andrew and Levi and all these other jokers stopped focusing on themselves and began to focus on the king, that's when things really began to work for them. I just happened to be reading through Peter just recently on this McShane reading guide, and I'm reading Peter, and out loud, I'm saying, Peter, got it. You read First and Second Peter, and you're going, oh, my goodness, he got it. You wonder all along if he got it, but then you read First and Second Peter, and you go, he got it. He found real humility. And I hope and pray that this month is conditioned by humility at just how far the king condescended. The nature of the kingdom, the irony of the citizens that he chose. We're going to continue in Mark for our supper. Look to Mark chapter 14. It's a very appropriate supper, very appropriate picture given the content of the message. Begin in verse 12, which is often read for the Lord's Supper, but I'm going to continue on all the way through verse 31, and you'll understand why here in a moment. So go ahead and get turned there, get situated. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room finished and ready there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one one to another, or say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, 
This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Traditionally, we stop the Lord's Supper. If we're reading that passage, you stop where I just verse or so in front of that. But let's keep reading about who's dining at this table. You will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, not me. Look who's at the table. Look who he condescended for. Though they all fall away, not the kid. Hmm. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you this very night, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And a few minutes later, they're running like a bunch of chickens. Don't miss that that's who's at the table. Is anybody not humbled? We're going to take this table, or we're going to take up this supper here in a moment, and I want you to see, this is our story. We're least likely to succeed. We're not MVP, we're LVP. I'm talking figurative. We're common. We're the sick, the needy, the poor that he came for. Let's enjoy having dinner with him right now, that he came to have dinner with the likes of us. Man, that makes for a humble people. Should make for a hungry people too, and a thankful people. Let's marvel together and be thankful together as we dine with the king. Let's distribute the elements. There's another quote in there that I thought very appropriate for this moment, just before we took the supper together. The point of this message is not, oh, we're all losers and God's great and he just came for a bunch of losers. It's about seeing ourselves in light of who he is, about understanding who we really are, the, con our, the human condition. It's not necessarily your condition. It is very particular and personal, but it's connecting to the real human condition I found this quote also in Fee. The truly humble show themselves so by resting their case with God rather than trusting in their own strength and machinations. That machinations means your own schemes and designs. Resting your case with God, that's what we do when we take the supper every single week. We are resting our case with God that he came for the least of these, that he came for the sick. We're confessing we're that sick that need a savior. He, it's, a, it's a message that's found elsewhere in the Bible. He chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. You think he's talking about circumstances? Probably. He's talking about people. <laughs> talking to the Corinthian church. He chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. You know what that should make for? It should make for a church that is delightfully approachable. Delightfully harmonious. 
a church that is shockingly aromatic in that I've never seen a church enjoy each other so much because we have a right view of ourselves. We're not walking around saying, oh, I'm a big piece of trash. You are too. It's a bunch of people that just understand who we are, what we are relative, the king. And we enjoy the irony of the citizenship, who he chose to be citizens. Man, it's, just, it's a, like a leveling. You're not so easily offended. I'm the chief of easily offended. But this conditions that, man. <laughs> Somebody say, you're not tall as I am. You don't realize you're standing in the red redwoods, you get mad. You realize you're standing in the redwoods, and then you go, oh, okay. <laughs> Whatever. Look at that. Right? It's perspective. Man, I needed that this week. I needed this right now. And I need this meal every single week. It's resting not in my own strength and my own designs, but I'm resting my case with God and what Christ has done for us. Let's rest our case with God. Take and eat and enjoy Christ's finished work. Let's enjoy the king together. Take and drink. I haven't decided if uh, I'm going to send out a follow-up email with those Philippians 2 connections or whether I'm going to actually preach a part two next Sunday. So that's something I'm going to be working through and praying through. You can pray about that as well. If it's an email, then I, it'll be potent and important, impotent. Um, so I encourage you to read it. So it's sort of a, you know, reading Philippians 2 in light of this morning's message, it's almost like Paul read Mark and said, mm, the Corinthian, I mean, the Philippians church needs to hear this, hear some, some teachings. So it, man, it's, it's amazing, amazing. It's like, it's like, like he's teaching on this passage. So it's almost like you're hearing a sermon from him. So whether it's an email or whether it's part two next week, we will follow up with that um, because it is impotent. And I'm going to send you off with a doxology this morning. Y'all stand. And this is our closing prayer slash doxology. In the book, in the little one chapter book of Jude, it ends with this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Y'all have a great week.